Our text this morning is uh, Job chapter 27 as we come back to our series through the book of Job. <coughs> Titled the, the message this morning, The Nature of Assurance, referring to the assurance of salvation. And I'll uh, hear now God's word from Job chapter 27. And Job again took up his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it for me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Let my enemy be as the wicked, and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword, and his descendants have not enough bread. Those who survive him, the pestilence buries, and his widows do not weep. Though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, He may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth's, like a booth that a watchman makes. He goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes, and his wealth is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood. In the night, a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up, and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls at him without pity. He flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps its hands at him and hisses at him from its place. Confidence can certainly come across as arrogance. In the workplace, it can happen that an expert who takes the lead is assumed by those around him that he must think he's better than everyone else. Wanting to avoid what they think is arrogance, there are churches that consider it a virtue to actually have doubts about your salvation. For example, they say that if you consider yourself worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper, you are pridefully tooting your own horn. And in those circles, there are only a few people who participate in the sacrament. They are the ones who have been told by the elders that they have lived a life of enough holiness to be deemed worthy. Anyone else who would participate is considered presumptuous and is thinking himself to be holy on the basis of his own judgment, which is said to be sinful pride. On the other hand, in these circles, it's considered a mark of piety and humility to question your status with God and to be in a state of constant spiritual concern. Well, if being confident and being assured of oneself is a mark of arrogance, then Job is running for the proudest man of the year award. For in the verses here before us this morning, Job is quite sure of his approved status with God. In fact, he's so bold as to condemn his friends as wicked men. 
and that can come across as pride. It could be pride, and yet not necessarily. And in Job's case, it's not. Now, I'm not prepared to say that Job is completely free of pride, since no one is. I'm not prepared to judge the depths of his heart. We will let God do that, and actually, eventually, we're going to hear God's response to Job. But let us take notice this morning of what Job asserts concerning himself and his relationship with God, where here he speaks boldly of having a right status with God, so that we can say of Job that he is certainly not a person who lacks assurance of salvation, though he does struggle with with how his good relationship with God lines up with his troubling experiences. Notice it's actually belief in God's promises and assurance of God's grace in the gospel that propels Job to continue to pursue God. So there is a struggle of faith, but it's a struggle born out of assurance that faith in the Messiah's atoning work, which for Job was to come, that faith in the Messiah's work really is the means by which a sinner is right with God. So then where does this leave Job's so-called friends? Well, if you think about the matter logically, if Job is right with God, as we know he is, then his friends, um, they're wrong if they think he is one of the most wicked men to have walked this earth. They have got it all wrong. And in condemning Job, they are only condemning themselves. The truth is they have wrongly judged an innocent man and in the process have battered and discouraged a believer in the Lord who should be receiving mercy and encouragement. And how they have treated Job, they have sinned greatly. And they have indeed placed themselves in the category of evil men. And Job summarizes in this chapter what will happen to wicked, unrepentant people. As we think about this this judgment of his friends, this is either such judgment is either born of pride or bold assurance. And I'm arguing here for bold assurance. Setting aside for a moment the question of what is going on with Job, let it be stated clearly that it's not prideful to have assurance of salvation. Nor is it prideful, per se, to speak of the judgment that other wicked men deserve. It's not prideful to be confident of one's salvation over against other people and even to say so. Now, it could be prideful. And it is prideful if your confidence is based in yourself. Those who are confident or would would say they're confident of, of, of getting to heaven, but it's on the basis of their good works, they are indeed prideful and ultimately self deceived. If you are quite sure that you are right with God and your basis for thinking so has anything to do with who you are and what you have done, that assurance is arrogance. But if you are sure of what you believe because God has said it in his word, and you are sure of a right relationship with God on the basis of God's grace in Jesus Christ, then you are only expressing the proper faith of taking God at his word. To trust in the promises of God as fulfilled in Christ, that's not pride, that's faith. And in the verses this morning, the flow of thought can be organized into three sections corresponding to our three points. First, we have in verses 1 through 6 an expression of Job's sure knowledge regarding what he believes concerning God and his relationship to God. So the first point is sure knowledge. And then second, we have in verses 7 through 10 this bold, imprecatory prayer where Job is calling down judgment on his enemies. 
And then third, we have in verses 11 through 23, an expression of firm confidence that he is in a right relationship with God where he can speak boldly and without hypocrisy of God's judgment coming upon wicked people. I don't, I'm not sure if you've recognized uh, the, the wording that I've used. I've spoken of Job's sure knowledge and his firm confidence. I don't know if that brings to mind anything, though, that wording, but that's language borrowed from the Heidelberg Catechism's definition of faith. In that catechism, it says, the question is, what is true faith? And the answer is, true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. So true faith is a sure knowledge at the same time, it is a firm confidence in the things of God and the promises of the gospel. So, so I begin with sure knowledge. At this point in our study of Job, we are in a section really that covers chapters 26 all the way to chapter 31. So essentially six chapters. Back in chapter 25, Bildad gave a final short reply to Job. And Job responded then in chapter 26 by asserting that God's greatness is inscrutable and incomprehensible. Basically, he argued that we cannot fully understand God's ways and must not, therefore, insist on trying to argue that God always acts a certain way just because it fits what we expect. And we know that chapter 27 starts a new speech because of the wording there of verse 1, and Job again took up his discourse. Chapter 29 will use the very same words of introduction, which tells us that at chapter 29 we have yet a second speech. But notice how Job uh, and his friends, this, this going back and forth is gone. We, are, we very much get the impression that Job's friends are defeated. Bildad's reply in chapter 25 was short and offered nothing new. So far had nothing, no reply at all to give. And so Hyrule Jones, in his commentary, he, he, he says this. He says, the debate between Job and his friends has been concluded, and Job is the victor. The brevity of Bildad's speech in chapter 25 points in this direction. The silence of Zophar shows this to be the case. Job holds center stage. He is the last man speaking. But Job still has more that he wants to say. He wants to make a full statement rather than just reply to one or more previous speakers, end quote. And hence we have these speeches of chapters 27 through 31. So looking now into the details of chapter 27, in verses 1 through 6, our first section, Job asserts two truths that have been at the heart of his argument with his friends all along, from the beginning. He is so certain, so sure of what he knows that he uses here an oath formula that maybe isn't perfectly clear in our English translation, but it's clear in the Hebrew. He begins this oath formula in verse 2 with the words, as God lives. All that he is going to say, he says in the context of God, who as the living God of heaven and earth knows all things, 
including everything related to Job's integrity. In verse 5, Job expresses how seriously he takes what he says here. The wording, far be it from me, is in the Hebrew the rough equivalent to someone saying, well, I will be damned, I will be condemned by God if I were to say something differently than what I now say. So what does he say? Well, first, he asserts as part of his oath that God is sovereign. Notice that Job has never doubted that God is in charge of the terrible trials that he is enduring. Knowing that there is no one else who can help him, Job is honest in expressing his complaints to God. He says, using, using uh, judicial language, the language of the court, that God has taken away his right to stand before him. This, this we recall, is, is wording that goes along with how Job has wanted a meeting with God where Job can assert his innocence and hear an explanation from God concerning why, why all of this, this, the, the, these trials that Job has had to experience, and yet God won't grant this meeting. In the context of, of God sending him troubles, Job rather bluntly says, God has made my soul bitter. So Job knows that God is sovereignly behind all of the struggles that he has been enduring. He also understands that God is the one who gives him life. As long as God continues to give him the breath of life in his nostrils, verse 3. So he knows his life is in God's hands. Job has not once questioned God's right, God's power to rule all things, including the details of his life. And then second, Job insists that he's never going to change his testimony. And what has been that testimony? The testimony of defending his integrity. To admit to sin he has not committed would be to, quote, speak falsehood, end quote, and, quote, utter deceit, end quote. Verse 4 is what I'm referring there to, his words there. He insists to his friends to paraphrase what he says. I will never admit that you are right in how you have accused me of wickedness. I will hold fast my claim to be righteous and will never change my mind. I continue to have a clear conscience before God. Job has a sure knowledge that he is right with God and is sure that he has a relationship with God that is consistent with a living faith. He is sure of God's sovereign involvement in his life. And what has been perplexing from the beginning for Job is, yes, this sure knowledge that he by faith is righteous and yet God is making him suffer deeply. God's own testimony is that Job is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Ezekiel 14 confirms that like Daniel and Noah, Job is a man of righteousness and a sinner who is blameless and upright because he fears God and who turns away from evil is, is a sinner whose heart has been changed by the Holy Spirit. And when you know that you are a sinner saved by grace, and are thankful for the salvation that God has provided in his Messiah, who we know to be Jesus, you strive to live a life of obedience, which is exactly what Job was doing. We know Job's faith was real because his life was marked by the good works that are born of real faith. When Job and anyone, including you, has a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, where you are trusting in him alone to forgive your sins, trusting in him alone to make you right with God, then you have every reason to be assured that you are forgiven. And you must know that there is no condemnation that you will ever face for your sins. 
You have every right to believe that God loves you and will work all things together for your good. For Job, his faith was not something tacked onto his life as something extra. He was, to use the language of today, he was not a Sunday Christian. He was not a nominal believer who from time to time did some religious exercises. His life was dominated by his faith. He lived his faith. And knowing that he was trusting in the covenant promises of God, um, he knew that what he trusted was reliable. And also key to an assurance of salvation is he knew his own heart. He knew that he had a deep love for God, a deep love for God's glory, and so he took God's law seriously, and he was striving to live a life of obedience. Now, his life was not perfect, but it was also not a life that was going to prompt God's discipline. And Job was sure of what he knew, of what he knew about God, about the gospel, about himself in relation to God by faith, and no one was going to tell Job otherwise. This is not arrogance. It is assured knowledge that belongs to a saving faith. And I hope that it's a sure knowledge that you share in your own heart and life. Then we come to our second point that relates to verses 7 through 10. These verses fall into the category of what can be called an imprecatory prayer. This is a prayer where a believer pleads with God to defeat his and our enemies. It's a plea for justice to be served against those who oppose righteousness. And we see the marks of an imprecatory prayer as Job asks that his enemy be as the wicked and that those who rise up against him as the unrighteous. And Job explains what he has in mind. Verse 8 has God cutting these enemies off by taking away their lives. Verse 9 has these enemies calling out in distress, but God not showing them mercy. I think it should be emphasized here that the anticipated cries of these wicked are not cries of repentance. These are cries of the wicked wanting relief from judgment, but without any desire to change, without any repentance. Verse 10 makes clear You see, the improper attitude of these wicked toward God, they do not take delight in the Almighty. They do not take uh, or or do not uh, call upon God at all times. I think these are, this is, verse 10 is is very key and, and important as we try to understand the nature of wicked men and the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. The unbeliever does not take delight in the Almighty. The unbeliever does not call upon God at all times. In other words, these enemies that Job has in mind, these unbelievers, they do not have a love relationship, a fellowship with God. When you know God in a saving way through repentance and faith, there is a delight that you have in God. In knowing God and having a relationship with God that makes any break in fellowship with him because of sin, pure agony. And this is exactly Job's experience. Yes, it was misery to lose his children and his possessions and his health, but what has bothered him the most all along is his perceived loss of fellowship with God. God seems distant. God won't meet with him and explain what is happening. It seems like God is against him, and yet Job refuses to believe that. And yet he struggles with what other conclusion can I reach? Unlike the ungodly, Job is one who has called upon God at all times. He didn't just start calling upon God during his times of trial. 
but he called upon God even before that as part of his everyday life, calling upon God even in good times because God has been to him a friend and not a vending machine. But with the wicked, it's otherwise. They use God to their own ends. They don't delight in God. They don't call upon God in good times, but only in desperate times. And if their desperation involved a sense of sin and issued in repentance, that would be one thing. But their calling upon God is only, you see, for relief from earthly troubles. They do not have a covenant relationship with God, which is why, as verse 9 says, they must not expect God to answer their prayers. So who are the wicked that Job has in mind? Well, verse 11, the very next verse, has Job addressing his friends, I will teach you where... We know in the Hebrew that the you there is plural. I will teach you. So we believe the enemy that Job has in mind is anyone who is like his friends. They have shown themselves by their baseless accusations to be the enemy and really to be friends of the ultimate enemy, Satan. Francis Anderson in his commentary on Job presents the startling contrast really between Job and his friends by honing in on the fact that they are the wicked. These friends are the wicked who do not call upon God at all times. Anderson remarks, this is what he says, he says, he, that is Job, constantly calls upon God. They never do. And I would challenge you to go back, perhaps if you doubt this, and and look over all of the dialogue so far between Job and his friends. I think this rings true once I I heard it. I hadn't noticed this before, but Job has been constantly talking about his relationship with God. And even in his speeches, again and again, he's calling out to God. His speeches are essentially his prayers to God, but we see nothing of that from his friends. Job knows where he stands with God, and he calls upon his loving Savior to not allow his enemies to go unpunished. And then we have firm confidence in verses 11 through 23. Job warns his friends by fleshing out what's going to happen to them if they continue in their wickedness against him. How, by how they've treated him, they have shown themselves to be wicked people who deserve God's judgments. And Job now describes the retru- retribution that the wicked can expect. Now, there have been many commentators who have thought that there's something wrong here as these are the kinds of things that Job's friends have said against him. Um, And they conclude that this must be a speech from Job's friends, and that it's wrongly ascribed to Job. But the manuscript evidence is that this section belongs to Job's speech. And the reasonable explanation is that Job here is turning his friends' words back on them. It was a key part of justice in the Old Testament that people who wrongly make an accusation deserve to have come upon them the very retribution that they were calling down upon the person they wrongly accused. Job never said that the kinds of things he here describes can't or don't happen to the wicked. His big thing was how how his friends assumed that the judgment of the wicked will always happen in this life, and that when a person faces troubles, as Job has, that this automatically means that they are wicked people, that the, and this is all judgment from God. Nevertheless, it is true that the wicked should expect to face judgment, even if it is only in death. So what does Job say 
will happen to the wicked, what they can expect, and therefore what, what his enemy friends can expect who have shown themselves to be wicked. Well, he lays out five things that those who attack the friends of God are to expect. First of all, there will be judgment against their families. Second, they will lose their wealth to the righteous. Third, what they have leaned on for security in this life will fail them. Four, they will be swept away in a terrifying death. And fifth, their judgment will involve no mercy. So verses 14 and 15 warn about the destruction of your family if you wickedly attack God's people, whether by war or famine, verse 14, or disease, verse 15, the families of the wicked are described here as being destroyed. And verse 15 uses a unique expression in the Hebrew, and we are told that pestilence buries those who survive the wicked man's death. Literally, they will be buried by death. An expression that refers to how in a time of pestilence, there's really not the opportunity for the proper burial that belongs to a funeral service. But death is said to do the burial because if you think about it, usually one, or two, one of two things takes place during uh, a, a pestilence as it takes lives. Either the person is buried immediately without the honor of a funeral service because of a fear of infection spreading or fear of, of infection spreading means that the dead are left unburied. So that's what's being portrayed here, and that the widows, notice the widows, plural, of the wicked, do not weep. That also fits the scenario of a pestilence. And yet, what is, what's the idea here of the widows, that word being in the plural? That calls for an explanation it's pointed out that the plural widows probably points to the wicked having more than one wife, so uh, the wicked are, are polygamous. Or it could be referring to all of the widows in this man's family, his own widow and those of his sons, which would mean that all of the male heirs have died. But that the widows do not weep might be because they have all died too, it's pointed out. In that culture, you honored the dead by outwardly weeping, and usually it was widow women who would do that weeping in a, in a, as part of the funeral procession. And so a lack of weeping means there's no one to honor the wicked man in his death. It could be that the widows are alive but are in such shock with the loss of their husbands and children and extended family that they're not emotionally and physically capable of, uh, of holding a, a funeral service. Or has also, as has also been suggested, that because their husband was uh, a wicked man, we can presume that he did not treat his wife or wives lovingly. And so there is no weeping because they are not sad to see him go. That's also a possibility. Verses 16 through 19, we have a description of the wicked man losing his wealth and a uh, in verses 16 and 17, the highlight there is that it's going to go to the righteous. As we are reminded in, in the Sermon on the Mount, that the meek are the ones, the, the righteous people of God, they are the ones who will inherit the earth. The wicked, as Job has said all along, they can be wealthy in this life, but their ability to hold on to that wealth won't last. And though to the wicked silver is as common as dust, Think of that. Silver is, is, is so 
prevalent, it's like dust, and clothing is piled up like clay or dirt, nevertheless it will all be lost to the righteous. In verses 18 and 19, follow basically the same theme, but focus more on how the rich lose what to them was their security. The house of a wealthy man is typically a status symbol and a place of refuge. But in the case of the house of this wicked man, Job uses figures of things that are fragile and temporary, like a moth could be saying that the house of the wicked man is like a fragile cocoon. Some think that the Hebrew is referring to a spider's web. Others think that it's referring to a bird's nest. So these are all things that are flimsy and, flimsy and, and fleeting. And then we have this booth that a watchman makes, which brings to mind the temporary shacks that would be set up during harvest time. Men, these, these watchmen would sit in these shacks guarding the fields overnight. And so this rich man's house is not going to last. Did you catch the figure here, the, the description? He goes to bed wealthy and he wakes up to find himself poor. Now, if that happened in this life, I can think of how fires and earthquakes, tornadoes, war, any number of things can strip away a person's greatest assets overnight. But there's also the loss of going to sleep and dying in your sleep and leaving all of these earthly things behind and, and finding oneself ultimately poor uh, because they, they, are, they are found in hell. And then verses 20 and 21 describe a terrifying death, terrors. The text refers to terrors, which are dreadful events, calamities, destruction. And that the wicked man is carried off and is gone means he dies. And so he dies in some agonizing way, some horrible way where he is overwhelmed like, like a flood. Maybe, maybe he's, he dies of a, of a painful disease or accident or he's cruelly murdered or he's left to die exposed to the elements. His death comes as a surprise like a tornado or whirlwind striking in the middle of the night. The reference to the east wind would have been immediately understood by the people of Job's day. It was that hot, destructive wind that would come in off of the desert to the east. Here it's used of a, as a figure of the judgment of God carrying the wicked man against his will away from all of the things of this life that he considers precious. And notice verses 22 and 23 as we come to the end of the chapter. The, these verses describe what is happening to the wicked man as having an unfriendly cause behind it. The wicked man's destruction, you understand, is not just something that randomly happens. It's not just coincidence. It's not just an accident. Whether the east wind here is being personified, it hurls at him and claps its hands and hisses at him. That's how the ESV um, translates it. Or it could be that this is God. He hurls the wind at him and claps his hands and hisses. But either way, the, the idea is basically the same. What happens to the wicked is purposeful. And this is because it is sent by God, even if it's by use of means. Now, some have suggested that this clapping and hissing is from people left behind who are glad to see the wicked man destroyed. And we can understand how that kind of interpretation is fitting. And yet, the Hebrew here has a single subject, it or he. 
is doing this clapping and this hissing. And so I go along with those who say here that it's God who is clapping and hissing. Now, it's not that God is clapping for joy at the demise of the wicked. Clapping, actually, in that culture was often an expression of anger. And hissing, an expression of derision, essentially mocking laughter. And this would correspond with what we find described in Psalm 2. Remember, it says there that God laughs and he holds in derision the wicked leaders of the world who oppose him, those who think they can get away with their wickedness. And the laughter in Psalm 2, as well as here in Job 27, is not God expressing enjoyment over the demise of the wicked, but rather how ridiculous it is that they think that they are going to be able to get away with what they're doing and not have to reckon with their creator. So this is a warning that Job is giving to his friends. And with what Job says here, we have kind of a summary of the main points that he's been making. He has insisted that the wicked don't just suffer in this life, that for the wicked, it's not just one moment of suffering after another. But we see in Job's description of the wicked that they have children and wives, even in the plural, which in that culture was a sign of prosperity. And they have piles of silver and clothes. They can be rich, but it doesn't last. And Job doesn't indicate that all of these things always happen to the wicked in this life, but death is certain, and death will separate them from all that they have enjoyed in this life and will expose them to the judgment of God. And Job has no doubt that the wicked will be judged. So what is to be our takeaway from this chapter? What I see in this chapter is an example of the perspective that you can have when you have assurance of your salvation. I want to begin with the negative, that is the things that a true assurance of salvation are not based on. A true assurance of salvation is not based on a minimizing of sin. It's not based on a minimizing of the reality of God's judgment against sin. There are inevitably those who try to convince themselves that they are saved, and their tactic is trying to paint themselves as good and as, as God really not being a God of justice, as a God who's not really concerned about man's sin. But that tactic ultimately proves fruitless. Notice how Job in no way minimizes the seriousness of God's judgment against sin. This makes it abundantly clear that those who are unrighteous and godless, they have a very dire future. So Job is not basing his assurance of salvation on a minimizing of sin and judgment. A true assurance of salvation is also not based on one's good works, which goes along with that first point. When people minimize sin, what do they inevitably do? They maximize their good works. And notice how Job more than once refers to the people of God as righteous and himself as righteous and then the unbeliever as unrighteous. Notice verse 6, he says, I hold fast my righteousness. Verse 17 says that the wicked pile up their clothing, but the righteous will wear it. In contrast is verse 7, verse 7, let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. Think about it, righteous and unrighteous. These are absolute categories. There's no partially righteous. If you are partially righteous, you are unrighteous. If you are unrighteous, there's not in any sense in which you are righteous. And if you are righteous, you are perfectly obedient to God's law. And if you are unrighteous, you are disobedient before God's law. 
If you are disobedient, you are worthy only of God's wrath and curse. If you are righteous, you are worthy of only God's blessings. And Job is not pridefully insisting that he is righteous when he is not. Scripture tells us that he was a righteous man. Well, how is that possible? Well, the only way that that has ever been possible is by faith. Anyone who trusts in his own works as the basis of assurance of being righteous is a deceived fool. Now, yes, it is an astounding thing that we, as sinful as we are, can be righteous in the sight of God. It sounds impossible, and we would be inclined to think that anyone who insists that he is righteous must be arrogant, but that we are righteous by faith in Christ has been the claim of God's people through the ages. You and I, as believers in Christ, have the right to refer to ourselves as righteous. Why? Because God has promised to forgive and to justify, to declare righteous all sinners who look to God by faith in the Savior God provides in his Messiah, Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ who was perfectly obedient and who died under the wrath of our sins in order to give a righteous record to all who trust in him. So what is a true assurance of salvation based upon? Well, it's based on the saving work of Jesus Christ. Our hope of heaven is based on the righteousness of Jesus given to us by grace through faith. And what is a key part of experiencing genuine assurance of salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit in your conscience. Job says at the end of verse 6, My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. And this is because he knows the reality of the good news of forgiveness the forgiveness of his sins by grace. And we know, um, according to verse 10, that Job knows what it is to have a real relationship with God that you also can have. He knows that God is his God, that he is God's child, and you can know that you are a saved child of God. You can know that by your attitude toward God. Do you delight in God? Do you love God? Do you want to please God? Do you want to know and please him better? Is he more to you than just a source of earthly blessings? And do you pray to him and not just ask him for things, but thank him and praise him? Do you commune with God by listening to him in his word and then responding in prayer? If you can say yes to these things, these are a part of what strengthens one's assurance of salvation. Like Job, if you have assurance of your salvation, you can then face all manner of difficulties in life and you keep moving forward in faith and with hope. Why? How? Well, because you know the gospel is real. And you know that those who trust in Christ are never going to be condemned for their sins. You and I, through Christ, can know. You should know if you are trusting Christ, you are righteous before God and therefore will never be condemned. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit in the heart of Job, giving him assurance of salvation in the midst of such difficult circumstances, in the midst of so many temptations coming from his friends that that he has no real faith at all. Lord, we pray that you would give us, each one, assurance of salvation not based in any way uh, in trusting in ourselves 
in who we are, but because we are trusting in Jesus, who he is, what he has done, his death upon the cross, his perfect obedience. Lord, may we know that by trusting in him, we indeed have clear consciences before you, that we can know we are righteous. Lord, give us this assurance, and then flowing from such assurance, Lord, give us the ability to stand strong, continuing to trust in you, despite the hardships that we face. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.